All right, we're glad you're here. Uh, this is Galatians 3, 23 through 29. I'm going to ask you, if you're physically able to stand, stand with us for the reading of God's word. Galatians 3, 23 through 29. But before faith came, Galatians 3, 23, we were kept in custody under the law being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, 25, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Please be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this great section in Galatians, finishing really an incredible chapter about how we really inherit the promise that's connected all the way back to Abraham. The promise of life through the seed of Abraham, the ultimate seed being Jesus himself. And this chapter really making it clear how one is saved. It is not by works. It's not by the works of the law. In fact, if you try to do it by the law, you're really under a curse. Rather, the blessing comes through placing faith in Jesus Christ. And it is a simple truth, and yet it is so profound that we have spent several uh, Bible studies and chapters digging it out so that we understand it from every angle, and we can never get too much of it, Lord. So I pray that you would open our eyes to the wonderful promises that you have for your people, especially in light of just current events, everything going on in this world, what we just talked about with uh, those three young men going home to be with you, Lord, and that promise becoming so Uh, much more precious to all of us who have lost a loved one, to those who may be battling a sickness right now, to those who may be looking at the world's uh, problems and challenges and wondering, is there hope beyond the grave? Are these promises really true? Can I bank my life on them? Well, thank you that those promises in Christ are yes and amen. We can bank on them, and I pray that you would Just increase our faith this morning as we look to you in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Amen. Now you'll notice uh, in verse 23 it says, but before faith came, that would be connected to the arrival of Christ, we, and many scholars see the we there as the Jewish people were kept in custody under, that's the Greek word hupo, and I've given you the image before that that kind of means under the weight of something, under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. That word revealed is apocalypto. You, you can think of the word apocalypsis or an apocalypse, and it really means a revealing. And when Christ came on the scene, he was the revelation. In times past, God spoke uh, through the prophets to us in many portions and in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his Son, 
Jesus Christ is the revelation of the promise. He is the revelation of God to us. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Amen? And when the light of Christ floods a life, wherever you may be, whatever your journey's been, whatever your background, whether you grew up with Christian faith or not, that revelation is the hope. Jesus Christ is our hope and our light. And he was revealed to this world some 2,000 years ago. There is a record of his life in the four Gospels. There are extra-biblical writings about the life of Jesus verifying his existence. And the record within the Bible of the four Gospels plus all the commentary on the Gospels and the other books, like Galatians that we're studying right now, which goes back and kind of dissects the gospel and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the current ministry that Jesus, who is alive in heaven, has to his people is what's in the rest of our Bible, right? What we call the letters or the epistles. Plus, we have the book of Acts, which shows the events of the early church. This promise, the word promise, uh, if you're interested, is a word that means an announcement. That's what a promise is. And it's an announcement of a promise of life. So the promise we're talking about, that we are heirs according to the promise, is a promise that God made to those who trust in his Son, and it's a promise of life. He who has the Son, Jesus, has this life. He who does not have the Son, this is what the Bible says, does not have this life. Now, I want you to think, and I'm going to give you an illustration familiar to a lot of you, and it's from the book of Luke. We won't turn there because I think you're familiar with it. And it's the scene where Jesus is dying on the cross, and he's being crucified between two criminals, one on the left and one on the right. A sign has been affixed to the top of the cross that says, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And it's written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. It's written to the whole world. And so it's, The Feast of Passover. So Jews from all over the world have descended upon Jerusalem for this high feast. And Jesus is dying on the Passover. Crucified on a public road where people could walk by during a normal day, conducting their business, going to the store. And their head would be about at his feet level. There he is dying on the cross, suffering for the sins of the world. And something unusual happens At midday, when it should be fully sunny in the springtime, what happens? The sky grows dark. There's some sort of eclipse of the sun. This is recorded by extra-biblical writers, historians, that some weird happening happened during the day where everything went dark, the earth quaked, and Jesus is dying on the cross. Now, you guys have, have read the stories or maybe even seen some movies about this, but here's something that happens that's quite interesting. A man being crucified right next to Jesus comes to his senses. And both of them are hurling abuse at Jesus for a time. Can you imagine, there you are dying, and you're like, yeah, if you're the Messiah, save us! And and come down from the cross, right? And they're hurling abuse. And one of them comes to his senses and said, Lord, he says, remember me, think of these words, when you come into your kingdom. Jesus says to that man, Surely, surely I say to you, most assuredly I say to you, what? Today 
you will be with me in paradise. How could a thief dying on a cross, being executed for a capital crime, become a co-heir of the kingdom of heaven right there on the spot. Today, you'll be with me a co-heir in the kingdom. How is that possible? Because salvation is by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. So that no one can boast. Now, the other man apparently never believed. And isn't it an interesting uh, scene to think about? One man becomes a co-heir with Christ simply by saying, Lord, remember me. Forget about my sin and remember me. I know something supernatural is happening. He becomes a co-heir with Christ. The other man, there's no record of his belief. What happens to him? He doesn't believe and he's condemned. This is the sad reality of where we are because of our fallenness. And this is where the text has been driving. Before faith came, look at verse 23. We, and many see both Jew and Gentile here, I'll let you wrestle with that, were kept in custody under, you could say, under the weight of the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. We were all in this situation. We were all kept in custody under the law. Now, I'll give you the, the word uh, there, the, the word picture, and this idea of kept in custody is to mount a guard as a sentinel. It's to hem in as in a garrison. It's to keep the inhabitants of a besieged city from flight. It's under the control of the Mosaic law so that he might not escape from its power. It's the watching and guarding to preserve one for the attainment of something. Now this uh, particular word picture is interesting because how many times was Jerusalem surrounded by armies? <laughs> On multiple occasions, right? So when Paul uses the illustration of a uh, city Captive. We can think of Jerusalem on multiple occasions, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. We can think of the Seleucids. We can think of Rome. When the legions of Rome in 70 AD surrounded the city and basically starved a bunch of people out. Now that's the word picture here. Hemmed in by the law. Now I hope we've made it clear that the law is not the problem, right? <laughs> The law comes from God. The law is holy and good because it's an extension of God. But the law reveals sin. Illustration. A pastor tells a story. He said they were on a road trip with their young son and they were driving for miles and miles and miles and miles and they were on a lot of dark roads. If you've ever taken the 10 freeway to Arizona, you kind of get the feeling of what that's like. They came to a place that was pretty illuminated under a uh, stoplight. And all of a sudden, the little boy said, look at all those dead bugs on our car. Ew. And all of a sudden, they drove on, and it got dark again. And he said, Mommy and Daddy, all the dead bugs are gone. They appeared, and then they're gone. Well, you all know, the dead bugs were still on the car. <laughs> and they'd probably been there for quite some time. But the light revealed the reality of the situation. This is what the law does. 
How many of you have ever done this before? You've dusted your house. You spray the pledge and you dust it. And then you open the blinds and you can't believe the particles that are in the air. So you close the blinds really quick. They're gone. No, they're not. <laughs> they're still there and you're still breathing them in. <gasps> See, you can close the blinds all you want, but the light of the law reveals the condition of the house. And sometimes when we're in different light, it reveals the true condition of us. The law is like a light or a mirror. Even when I don't want to look at the reality, I want to close the blinds. The law says, no, you've sinned against God. You've failed to do the right thing. You've taken uh, his commandments and pushed them aside. You haven't been perfect. You've missed the mark. And the law surrounds us. This is the problem. It, it reveals the reality. If you go back a verse, it says, but the scripture, 22, graphe, has shut up all men under sin. There's that idea there again about like being under a huge weight or boulder, that the promise, there's that promise, by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to who? To those who believe. The scripture has declared the whole world to be prisoners in subjection to sin. And here the idea of shut up is the idea of fish enclosed in a net, shut together in a tight space. The law encloses and confines all of us under sin. Now a lot of the first disciples were fishermen. And we have some fishing miracles in the Gospels, right? And nets overflowing with fish. And all fish crammed into a net is a word picture that the fishermen could understand. In a tight space with no way out, no way of release, if you will. This is what the law does. The whole world is enclosed as guilty before God. And we need an answer. What is the answer? How do we Find a way of escape. I think each of us know deep down that something's wrong. Each of us have a sense within our hearts. And Romans 1 and 2 makes this clear. We have a sense of the law. Our hearts have the law written on them because we've been made in the image of God. And our conscience bears witness to that law. This is what theologians call the moral argument for God's existence. We have a sense of right and wrong verified by our conscience. And our conscience will either accuse us or excuse us. Amen? So there's times when I was growing up and I would get in a fight with my sister. And my sister was tough and strong and faster than me, as frustrating as that was. And we get in a little scrap. And we go back and forth, and she'd hit me, and I'd chase her, and I'd hit her, and I always then felt bad. Ah, oh, I hit my sister. <laughs> Why did I feel bad? Because I had a sense of the law. Because <laughs> I had a conscience. And that's just the problem with the people these days, said Jiminy Cricket. <laughs> Nobody pays attention to their conscience anymore. That's just the problem with the world today. Anyway. I know that was a weak attempt. But anyway. <laughs> so scholars say that here the 
the law functions as a kind of warden, a warden of a prison. And there we are, behind bars, hemmed in, tight spaces, guilt, with no hope of escape. And then the revelation of Jesus comes. And what did he come to do? To set the captives free. Isaiah 61. He's in his own hometown. Luke chapter 4 captures this. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has sent me to proclaim good news to the captives, to set at liberty the people who were trapped. Paraphrasing, but you guys remember the verses. I've come to set people free, to open the prison doors, to lift the weight, to lift the boulder, to make you free. Many people who have uh, shared with me their experience of salvation have told me they felt like a weight was lifted off of their shoulders. And that's what he does. Because he took the weight for us to give us that hope of everlasting life. Now, a further image that's given to us in verse 24 is that of a tutor. Therefore, the law, 24, has become our tutor. Your, uh, your translation may say guardian. Uh, if you have an old King James, it says schoolmaster. RSV says custodian. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. The Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law, is a tutor. Now, a tutor in our uh, vernacular is somebody maybe growing up that help you, helped you with your algebra homework, homework or maybe did your algebra homework for you. Anybody out there? Slip them $20. <laughs> Just do it for me. I don't get it. Those of you who get algebra, we, we highly respect you. That's all I can say. Anyway. But a tutor in the ancient world was a very familiar scene to the ancients. And here's what would happen. In Greco-Roman households, they had something called a pedagogos. Or we might just say a pedagogue. And a pedagogue was an ancient servant. Could be a slave in a household or a free person who served in a household. And they were responsible typically for young boys. They were kind of a glorified babysitter who were given charge by wealthy families to make sure the kids did their assignments, went off to school safely, got home safely. They were known as strict disciplinarians. And in fact, I guess the pedagogue was not liked, especially by the pedagogy, <laughs> the person being babysat. How many of you growing up abused your babysitters? Oh. How many of you had households where babysitters had one-time events and never returned? <laughs> I don't care how much you pay me. I'm out of here. <laughs> anyway. But in the ancient world, this is what the pedagogue did. Kind of oversaw the young kids, and their role was a temporary role until the kids uh, reached adulthood. The pedagogue would make sure they did their assignments, that they went to school, they did their studies, they were protected, they did their chores and everything. And then they were known as a child conductor until the child came of age. And when you came of age in a Roman society, you changed clothes. 
from the clothes of a child, you got to put on the toga. And the toga meant that you had hit adulthood. In Jewish circles, you became considered an adult at your bar mitzvah when you became literally accountable to the law, a son of the law. That's the idea of bar mitzvah, son of the law. And so this law that we've been talking about, captured in the word Torah, is a tutor. How so? It watched over us. Now, there are, there are those, and I want to throw this out for your consideration, in Jewish circles that say that we need to see some of these images as more positive. And let me explain. They say that when we talk about the Torah being a custodian and a guardian and a tutor, that we need to see that the law entrusted to the Jewish people was for their good and for their protection and to make them a special people. And there are certainly nuances to that truth that we need to consider as probably a largely non-Jewish Gentile group. And let me, I want to put this out there for those of you who are interested in evangelizing our Jewish friends. Sometimes they say that when we talk about the law, we are painting with such a broad brush that we do a disservice to the oracles entrusted to the people of God because it set them apart as a special people and in some ways it prepared them for the Messiah. And they say that we need to be careful that we don't tell people, Jewish committed people who are committed to the Sabbath or kosher diets or um, you know things that go with a a Jewish approach to life that we don't say that you can't keep Torah anymore or Torah doesn't mean anything anymore. Because the realization for a Jewish Christian is this. Now I understand the fulfillment of Torah. Example, Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law, but to fulfill the law. So a Jewish believer might say, I practice Passover, but I know it points to the Messiah. I practice the Feast of Tabernacles. I make, you know, a shelter in my backyard, but I know it points to Jesus and the second coming of the Lord. They might practice Shabbat or the Sabbath. At Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. And we would say, praise God. You don't have to stop with your cultural practices to be a Christian. And sometimes, and I, I put this out there so we can have kind of a more full orb perspective. Sometimes we make the law such a, a general idea that we say, well, the law is gone. No, the law, the moral aspects of the law are still in place. Amen. Thou shalt not murder steal, commit adultery. <laughs> now, we're not saved by keeping the law, but the law is still God's top ten if you look at the moral aspects of the law. And here's where we can become a Christian and still retain some traditions, if you will, that are good and healthy as long as we don't miss Christ in them. 
We've had many services here where we've done a Seder service and we call it Christ in the Passover. This is important for us to understand because I think some of the people out there that are Jewish think that maybe we push them away by not understanding where they're coming from. Everybody with me? So I'll give you an example. Uh, Dr. Walter Martin, way back in the day, was at New York University, and he said that there was a man who had become a Christian. He was a Jewish man, and he was a very passionate evangelist. And so he would walk up and down the street in front of New York University, and he would share the gospel. But Dr. Martin said that he was so obnoxious (laughs) to the Jewish students that he had them all fired up. He said... In Dr. Walter Martin's style, he would chew him up one side and chew him down the other. He said he had him into a frenzy. He said, way back in the day, I was still known as the professor. And so he said, I come walking by one day, he had them all stirred up, all angry. Repent! you you got to leave this stuff and come to Jesus. And, and then all of a sudden, Walter Martin said he was just walking by, and the Jewish evangelist pointed at Dr. Martin and said, There! There's a man who can answer your questions. And Dr. Martin was like, What? He had him in a frenzy. They were like sharks going to blood in the water. And Dr. Martin said, What, what was I to do? He said, I felt like I would just start. Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, little lamb. I didn't know what to say. But then he said, in a moment, I said to them, you know, you don't have to stop being Jewish to become a Christian. Jesus was a Jew. And then I'll let you consider whether or not this statement is the best way to do evangelism. He said, you can either go to heaven God's way or go to hell your own. And he walked away. That was how Dr. Martin rolled. He was very blunt. But see, sometimes people get the idea that, oh, well, then all, does all of this go away? No, what Paul is saying is simply this. Circumcision doesn't save you. A kosher diet doesn't save you. Keeping Shabbat, Sabbath days don't save you. But if you're Jewish, you don't have to stop doing that. Just come to Jesus. And if you're from another culture where maybe, you know, you wonder, well, can I become a Christian? My family didn't do things this way. Or how do, I, how do I gravitate through my heritage to come to Jesus? You come to Jesus the way we all come to Jesus. I'm Italian. I came to Jesus the way everybody comes to Jesus. I realized I was a sinner in need of a Savior. You see, all ground is level at the foot of the cross. And I want you to think, brethren... For a second. Think about the people that come into the kingdom. Think about Paul in Philippi. He leads a woman named Lydia to the Lord. He uh, witnesses to a servant girl who had been demon-possessed. He shares the gospel with a Philippian jailer who comes to the Lord. You have Gentiles like Luke and Titus. You have all these Jewish people who get saved on the day of Pentecost in the early church. Jew and Gentile. One people In Jesus Christ, one people yet different. Look around the room. (laughs) Diversity in the body of Christ is a wonderful thing because it tells us 
that we're not cookie cutters. We all arrived at the foot of the cross maybe a different way, but we're all in need of a Savior. And when those walls come down between Jew and Gentile, and by the way, uh, they were a major stumbling block in the ancient world. These class divisions, now there's modern ones that appear, were a big deal. But they're gone in Jesus. We retain, of course, our heritage, our uniqueness, our background, but we're all the family of Christ. I'll give you an example. I was reading a commentary this week, and Pastor Redding, a commentary, his last name is Wilson, said that he's adopted children from Ethiopia and Africa. And he's a Caucasian pastor in the States. He adopted these two boys, uh, twin boys, uh, out, of, out of an orphanage. So they were orphans, and they're now part of his family. He said, you know, now that they're a Wilson, these boys have a new identity. They're still who they are, skin color, background, heritage. But they now have a new identity in Christ as the Wilson boys. And this is what happens to all of us as believers. When we come to Jesus, we're still who we are, but we now have a new family identity. We belong to Christ and to one another. Amen? And you and I have an incredibly big family. There are billions of us around the world. Anywhere you go in the world, anywhere you go in the city, anywhere you go in the state, you meet another Christian, what do you know immediately? We're family. We call each other brother and sister. Why? Because we're related. It's awesome. For you, 26, are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You're all sons, daughters. 25, now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. I told you, once the tutor had done his job, once the young person grew up and put on the toga, the tutor wasn't needed anymore. If you're 20 years old, hopefully your parents don't have to call a babysitter for you. Can I get a witness? Some of you still need babysitters at 20 years old, but that's another story. Anyway, what does that mean? What does it mean that once faith comes, we're no longer under a tutor? It means that the law was part of the old covenant. It was the old revelation. Now we've come to Christ. We're not under the weight of the tutor in terms of thinking that that can save us. We're sons, daughters of the Most High God, and the channel by which that birth is realized is faith. For all of you, 27, who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. You can think of that toga image there, because this refers to a change of garments. All of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, New King James. The fact that in this chapter, faith is mentioned 15 times and baptism only once should make us consider strongly that baptism is simply a picture of salvation and is not salvation itself. However, quoting from a commentary, for the earliest Christians, repentance, faith, and conversion and baptism were often experienced 
as a single event or a package deal, if you will. Baptism was the Christian rite of initiation into the church. This writer says, perhaps in our attempt to emphasize that baptism doesn't save you, we've downplayed baptism into relative insignificance. Let me explain. Water of baptism doesn't save you, Christ saves you. But Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And throughout church history, my understanding of church history is that your baptism was the main time that you gave a public confession that you identified with Christ, you were one with him clothed with Christ, and that you identified with his people or his body. The 3,000 people that got saved on the day of Pentecost baptized. Why? Because it was a way to show that you were clothed with Christ. And you go into the waters of baptism it, scholars say that it's the big, the big theme is identification with Christ, but there's death, burial, and resurrection. You go under the water, kind of the old person goes under the water, the new person, newness of life in Christ comes out, clothed, immersed with Christ. You with me? So we should make sure that people understand baptism doesn't save you. But if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, you, you need to get in some water, man. You do, because it's obedience to Christ. You say, well, if it's not necessary for salvation, why should I do it? Because it's necessary for obedience. And if Jesus is your Lord, then you obey him, amen? So you get before a congregation, you go down into the water. I had the privilege of baptizing multiple people in the Jordan River, our last uh, trip to Israel. I was baptized, uh, my wife and I were baptized when we first became Christians, and I have to confess that uh, in, in my early years as a Christian, I was a rocky Christian. <laughs> I was trying to live for Jesus, but oh, there were lots of struggles, and I'm sure you could relate. So our last trip to Israel, I, I had been considering my own baptism, and John the Beloved happened to be at the he was helping me baptize people, and uh, uh, Brian, Fireman Brian was there, and uh, I turned to Fireman Brian, and I said, baptize me. <laughs> He's like, what? What? <laughs> okay, and he did the, and down into the Jordan River went Pastor Michael, praise the Lord. And I just felt like I needed to do that because I was at a place in my own life where I just wanted to say, Lord, I belong. I belong to you. This is a picture of identity. When I go down into the waters of baptism, it's a picture of my sins being washed away the, by the blood of Jesus. Coming up out of the water, it's a picture of walking now in a new life, Romans 6, 4. Amen? Isn't it exciting when people get baptized up here? It's so cool because it tells you something so beautifully significant has happened in their life. And so, this is, this is what it means for us to be believers. We've been clothed with Christ, with his righteousness. Think of that thief on the cross. The righteousness of Jesus came to his life, not because he was a good guy, 
or had hit the mark. No, he was dying for a capital crime, but he had placed faith in Jesus. 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Here's the conclusion. There's neither slave nor free man. These were big categories in the ancient world. Jew or Greek, about half the Roman population was in some sort of servitude, slave or free man. And another big category, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now I just said to you, and I think this is important to understand, that even though we have new identities and we're a new community and family in Christ, we haven't stopped being the things that we once were. See, I'm still Italian, even though I'm a Christian. Still Jew or Gentile. I'm still a male. <laughs> male and female. In the ancient world, there were still free and slave. In our day, you could say it could be some different categories, but here's the point. It could be uh, an ethnic difference. You still retain those things, but something bigger has happened in your life. Amen? You belong to the family of God. And I say this to emphasize that there's some goofy arguments in the church based upon Galatians 3.28 that basically, well, now that we're all in Christ, all bets are off. No, they're still male and female. That hasn't changed. But what supersedes that is our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the ancient world, Jews used to pray, oh God, thank you that I'm not a woman. And I'm not kidding around. Thank you that I'm not a slave. And thank you that I'm not a Gentile. That's the morning prayer. <laughs> Can you imagine? Imagine the mindset that that puts into people towards others. And so we know in our culture now there's all these uh, debates and, and people look at the church and they wonder, is the church different? For example, is there racism in the church? Some people have said 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings is the most divided hour of the week in our country. And I think that's accurate. However, I do know that right now on a Sunday morning, there's a Filipino congregation or Sunday afternoon that meets at our other location. And that's fine. I talked to a man who is pastor or rabbi over a Jewish messianic congregation. You've met, so many of you have met Rabbi Robert. And they meet on Saturdays. And that's great. But you know what? The church should be a place that no matter who you are, male, female, whatever your ethnic background is, dot, 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 walk it out. It makes no difference because we are one in Jesus, clothed with Christ, and one new community. Amen? And for the evangelical church, it would do us well to see that we need to see people through Christ and ourselves as well. See, how we look at other people says a lot about who we are and what we believe. And we live in a culture right now where, you know, people have had to fight for rights. And women in the church have sometimes felt like they just get brushed aside. But you know, women in the church have been the backbone of the church. 
Oftentimes I see women coming to the church without their husbands. It'll happen next Sunday on Super Bowl Sunday. Why? Because the men have to watch seven hours of pregame while they eat their Cheetos. <laughs> well, let's find out another angle about the game that's going to happen at 3.30 in the afternoon. Wait a minute. Hold on. Now, if your team's in the Super Bowl, you'll be there with the Cheetos. Chiefs fans. It's been 50 years for the Chiefs. Come on. Anyway. And if you're a 49ers fan, we'll just pray for you. That's all we can do. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I was just talking about us not worrying about things of division anymore. That's why people can come in here with their Packers jerseys and the Chiefs jerseys and the Raiders jerseys, and we go, oh, God, help me love that person. <laughs> Final verse. Because <laughs> I know you can't take much more. And if you belong to Christ, do you see who you belong to? If you're his, you belong to him. And he to you. Then you are, and this has been the question that Paul's been digging out. Who is Abraham's offspring? People that get circumcised? People that keep the food laws? People that uh, keep Sabbath? No, if you belong to Christ, you are what? Abraham's offspring. And what are you? You're an heir according to the promise. A new community, a common destiny. I want to show you a verse in Hebrews and then Pastor Michael promises he's done. Go over to Hebrews 6. This is to the right in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 6. And if the worship team can hear my voice, if you guys would come on up. Hebrews 6. Verse 11. I'll go back to verse 10. Hebrews 6.10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward him, toward his name, in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. 11. Hebrews 6.11. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. All the way back to Genesis 15, which we studied. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have strong encouragement. We who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Lord God, we thank you so much for Jesus, our great high priest, 
Thank you that by placing faith in Jesus, we can be right with you. We can be a co-heir with Christ. We can inherit all the promises. You will see us safely home to your heavenly kingdom. And Abraham was able to see the promises, but yet from a distance. But he was looking for a city whose foundations and builder is God. And Abraham left his homeland, and he didn't know where he was going, but he trusted you. And in Genesis 15, he saw you uh, make an unconditional covenant with him. Really by yourself, Lord. You couldn't swear by anybody higher, so you swore by yourself. Passing through those animal parts. And then in Genesis 22, when Abraham was willing to offer his son, you stopped him. You provided the lamb. And on that same mountain, 2,000 years later, the Lamb of God would pay that ransom price. Abraham saw the promises. He saw Jesus' day and was glad. And there are verses in Scripture that say we will sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, co-heirs of the promise. Because they wouldn't realize the promises without your bride and it's amazing to us to think about the fact that we have a co-heir position with Abraham and Paul and Luke and John and all the saints throughout history, Lord. And if you're here and you're, you're not sure if you've made that your own, you're not sure if you've been clothed with Christ, well, you've seen the scriptures and it's just simply to place your trust in him. You got, you've got to trust him. And if you need to do that for the first time or maybe rededicate yourself to him, now would be that great time. And it's just something very simple. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming into this world to save me. Pray it if it's you. Thank you for securing the promise through your death on the cross in my place and your resurrection. I believe. I turn away from trying to do it on my own, trying to do it through performance or law. And I'm going to put my full trust in you just like that thief on the cross did that day. That you'd make me a co-heir with Christ, which is so humbling and amazing, Lord. And I ask that you would save me and wash away my sins and make me a new person in Christ. Clothe me with the beauty of who you are, Lord. Bring me to yourself so I belong to you and to the community of the believing saints. In Jesus' name. Father, for those who have prayed, may you bless them. And Lord, we can't help but think of the three families that lost the young men in this accident. Um, we think of the man who did this as well, Lord, and pray that he would have his eyes open to your gospel. But our thoughts and prayers right now go to those families that have lost. Thank you that they are anchored to the hope of the promise that's in Jesus. Thank you that that hope can be an anchor in the midst of the storms of this unpredictable world where we don't even know what a day is going to bring. But thank you for the hope of the promise that even death is not the end of the story. Jesus will write the end of the story. And thank you that he showed that he is true by raising from the dead. And we're humbled and grateful that you made a way for us, Lord. 
And I pray that you'll help us all to be anchored to that hope in a world that is often stormy. Help us to be sure and steadfast and know that you have told the truth about what you've done. And we can have great hope because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?